0: As always, our show is sponsored by Memoria Press. You can find our curriculum at memoriapress.com.
1: Welcome to Classical Etc., a show from Memoria Press that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon.
0: Welcome to another episode of Classical Etc. I'm seated with Paul, Tanya, and Martin. Today we're going to talk about leading classroom discussions, being that great discussion teacher that we all kind of see in movies that makes you, you know, uh, gives a romantic vision of the teaching life that is probably maybe an illusion. But we're going to get there after I ask you all a question. I'm kind of curious, Paul,
1: when you're deciding your next book, what are
0: some of the ways that you choose what you're going to read
1: next? Um, Mostly it's feeling. Yeah, I just, you know, I've got this whole wall of books. And when I finish one, I go and I look and I say, what strikes me?
0: Are there certain things that like influence what's striking you? Like, is it like a mood that you're in? Like if you, you know, have been reading a particular era or is like if someone in conversation mentioned, like what are the kinds of things that influence your mood? Do you think?
1: Um, so one of them is, do I have somebody who gave me this book that keeps asking me if I've read yeah, it? Sure. Uh, Mitchell Mitchell's doing that to me on a book, currently on two books. Um, and I'm doing that back to him on a couple of books. So we're going back and forth on that.
2: Your accountability buddies. That's right.
1: That's right. On what we're reading. Um, sometimes it also has to do with what else is going on in my life. So... If, if I'm really busy, I'll choose a lighter book because then it's something that I, that I look forward to, to, to you know, and will keep me reading. If I don't have a lot going on and I know I'm going to have time to sit down and dedicate to it. I've got a whole book on, on silence. And every once in a while when I feel like I'm rushing too much, I'll pull that out and I'll read a little bit of that.
2: But it's not the book called silence. right? No,
1: no, no, no. I forget. I think it's called <clears throat> the world of silence. I got it from eighth day books. Um, at a conference once mm-hmm. and and I was like I, I think I need this mm. and it's very good it's little short little chapters on different aspects of silence so it's just you know I'm trying to listen to uh, the different things going on in my life about what do I need mm-hmm. how do I fill my soul at this time with what, what I'm reading and sometimes I dig into a book and I'm like I have no idea what I'm getting into but it kind of strikes me so we'll yep. see uh, you know yep. I've probably
0: mentioned it a few times on this podcast, but I I really like to follow the voices of particular authors that I appreciate. And so I'll read a lot of books by the same author and then I'll read the people that they, that influenced them. That's one way that I kind of end up following the rabbit trail of, of books. Um, Tony, what about you? How do you choose what you're going to read I, next?
2: I do all of those things. Yeah. It, and really, it does a lot depend on what else is going on sure. at, in my work life. If it Like in the summer, I find it very difficult to read difficult things, mm. but I try to discipline myself to always be reading something difficult. But then, you know, there's that call of the British murder mm-hmm. mystery that never goes away.
0: It's irresistible.
2: Yes, it is irresistible, but I but I also will go down a rabbit trail with an author mm. and try to read everything that author wrote.
1: Yeah. Oh, which, I've been on that rabbit trail for a long Green. time. With Graham Greene. Yes. <laughs> Martin, what about you?
3: I, I you know it's interesting. I don't do that at all in terms of finding an author and reading every I I, I want to be able to enjoy that author for a long, long time. You do. Mm-hmm. Where I like, mm-hmm.
2: you would get me started on a series yeah. and I would speed through it yeah, and get would. way ahead of you because you're like, I'm going to savor this, save some for my retirement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This yeah. also
0: explains why we don't hang out very often. It's that you want to enjoy my company longer. Oh, we so, don't want to so, wear out it out too quickly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I was wondering about that. I so I appreciate your to. thoughtfulness there. Yeah.
3: Uh, but I, you know, I have my, I've mentioned before, I have, I have my list of all the books I want to read before I die. So it, it and, and I mean, Mostly, my reading is dictated by what I have to read for work because i I have to read a lot for work
2: that does dictate a lot of what mm. we read, yeah
3: and and so th- there's a lot of books I have to read. I'm going to read Monsignor Quixote because Paul wants to read it for our book group uh, in in March. and um so i'm that's going to yeah. take up some some time, but I, I, but I'm, I'm usually just I, I want to, I want to make sure I get certain things read, and I have my long list with, and a lot, and you know, a lot of them are bolded, which is the really important ones I really need to read.
0: It kind of strikes me that your list of books that you want to read before you die is somewhat existential. That when you reach the end of that list, it's going to be a really
3: dark day for you. And well, well, it's see. a really long list. I mean, if I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, well, I'm, I'm lucky that you I, never reach the end yeah. of it.
1: But you, but you read a lot. I do
3: I do read. I mean,
1: I, I don't know that it would take you too terribly long. I mean, I don't know how long this list is, but you know, it, if if you had all long. day every day yeah. to read, I, I'd be curious I'd be curious how long that would take you.
3: Yeah, I don't know. And and you know, I I have a house closer to to the office now and it, so I I don't get as much time reading on the road mm-hmm. as I used to and I realized how much that has cost me actually. Mm-hmm. So I I then I feel this greater obligation to read. Read yeah. read. You know, yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, it's. Um, I find that the some of the books that I'm forced to read for my job, I truly enjoy, mm-hmm. and others feel like an obligation. And when I'm reading a book that feels like an obligation, I feel like I need to add in a British murder mystery, sure. so that I can have enjoyment in reading. And I try to work too. it to where
3: the books I have to read are the books I really want to read. Well, that's that. Oh, but would there be. are books, you know. There are there are books. You know those books that there are books that you know you would really like if you read them but you just don't have an excuse to read them so like an example for me just recently would be pride and prejudice right uh, now i i think i am still not sure i whether i read it or not you know a long time ago but i i don't think i've read it recently cuz when i read it recently i realized i i really hadn't if if you know in the last 20 30 years anyway and so But it was welcome. It was a welcome Mm -hmm. obligation to have to read.
2: That's right. I am really enjoying my return to Jane Austen.
0: Yeah, give us a Mansfield Park uh, update.
2: I am really enjoying it. Selita won you over. I am really enjoying it. Very. She has won me over. Now we'll see by the end. But I do think it matters how um, what time of life Mm -hmm. you read it and I did I read Mm -hmm. it at a time of life when I could not I just couldn't um, enjoy Fanny at all I was frustrated with her I as a young person was putting myself in her place and thinking well this is just ridiculous Mm -hmm. she just needs to put herself out there and now I can read with empathy for her and who she is and an understanding more about the time period and you know it's just wasted on the young
3: yeah, I often wonder if we should, you know, cuz what you want to do on books like this is is you you kind of want to say, well, we shouldn't read these books early because they you really can't appreciate them like you appreciate them later in life. But I really don't think that's true. I just think that you appreciate them differently for, for that yes. reason. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. you you it's not that you don't appre- you can't appreciate them earlier. It's just that you appreciate them in a different way because of what experience you're now bringing to it. And
0: probably that early experience with the book that wasn't as good as some of the others is making it different this second time as well. Yes. So it's, it's another reason why I wouldn't ever discourage someone from reading a great book when they're young.
2: That's right. Oh no, I wouldn't discourage it either, but I certainly related much better to Emma than I do to did at that point in my life to Fanny Price, but I still, it was still Jane Austen. It was still a good read I just didn't particularly like that character because I didn't understand her.
1: That was like me with Lord of the Rings. I tried to read Lord of the Rings when I was... Too young? Seventh or eighth grade, maybe. Mm -hmm. And because I wasn't paying attention very carefully to every name, I would just look at it and be like, I know kind of who Bilbo is, but like I didn't really sound it out. And by the time I got halfway through the third book, I was totally lost. Couldn't understand a word of it because he's got so many names that are so similar then I just put it down. And then finally, I had somebody just like rake me over the coals for it and like at the end of high school, like you stopped halfway through the third book. <laughs> and so then I went back and reread it. And it, I mean, it was, I, a different I loved experience. it, but it was a different experience. Yeah.
2: But I think the thing for me is not just, you know, I always, always have books to read. I need the security of knowing that my bookshelf has too many books on it that I haven't read. If I ever thought I was, like my bookshelf was down to like three books that I haven't read, I would be in a panic (laughs) rushing off to a local bookstore to replenish it because I, there's some, I have some kind of insecurity about running out of Mm -hmm. reading material.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, it's very possible in the day of Amazon and, you know,
2: that I can have a book in 24 hours. You know, but I, I struggle with
1: when I, when I'm going to go on a road trip and I'm looking for a book to listen to or uh that's the particular thing because if I need a book to sit down and read I have plenty on my shelf and I don't need to go look for one but if I'm going to go look for an audiobook I struggle to find one that's not in the canon that I know I'm going to like hmm. if that makes sense so like I can't go through the 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 top picks and hope to find something good. That's true. And, and it, it, it's, it's sort of infuriating to me because, so whenever I do find a book that I'm like, ooh, that's good, I, I buy it right then. So then that way I have, I have a running list. Right. But it does, it, it, like that idea of running out and trying to find a book, uh, I, every time I try to do that, I, I,
2: I end up unhappy. That's like when you're trying to find the perfect dress. It just happens to be,
0: not it just
2: happens to like, there are beautiful dresses, but then when you really need one for a wedding, you yeah. can't find it.
0: The analogy is that we're concerned that we're going to run out of clothes at some point. And that would be a really terrible experience.
1: <laughs> or just the right clothes. It might be as terrible as not having a book. Yeah, right.
0: <laughs> On that note, today's episode... <laughs> is a follow-up to a previous conversation about Socratic questioning, where we talked about that term specifically and just what it actually means. And I think we kind of landed on a place of saying there's a lot of uh, intention behind that term that is noteworthy, but it's worth kind of analyzing what people mean by it. We didn't necessarily take the second step of suggesting, how do you actually have great classroom discussions, especially in high school uh, classes, or college classes where you want to bring the students out of their shells to engage with the material that you're covering and that you're talking about. So today's episode is about how can we lead great classroom conversations and what do teachers need to do to prepare themselves for that classroom experience? So Tanya, I'll kick it to you. Cheryl actually had some thoughts on what kinds of questions, instead of just saying, you should be a Socratic questioner. She actually said, here are the questions that you can ask. And then I think from there, we can nuance what ages are these appropriate for? Um, How does a teacher get prepared to ask these kinds of questions? And I think that could be helpful for someone thinking about a literature class or history class or a theology class.
2: Yes, and I appreciate you throwing it to me, but I would like to throw it to Paul because Cheryl had a real conversation with Paul about this and about the four types of questions, and she made him speak about it once. And so I really feel (laughs) like he should probably be the one to give the introduction to this, and then I will kick in whenever.
1: (laughs) Well, so— I loved the fact that she wanted to make a distinction on the kinds of questions because that's a, that's a distinction that's not often made. Mm. And so, uh, you know, if you were to walk into a highlands classroom, you would see, especially in, in grade school years. But I mean, I used it in, in middle school and high school where you start the class out, just asking very discrete kind of questions right where where the student can give you a very quick response and that can be done for review that can be done um you know at at the end of a lesson where you're just trying to make sure they've they've gotten everything uh, but uh, we we talked about uh, in the in the socratic conversation martin made that point where you have people get up to talk about how good credit question is, but they just, they didactically lecture it to you. Right. And I think talking about this kind of question is, is saying there are questions that you can, you can engage the student very, very quickly. Um, and not, not spend time, but you're asking something like, when was Rome founded? Who founded Rome? um, You know, uh, those kinds of questions because you're going to get an immediate uh, response. So rapid fire kind of things. And then you've got sort of evaluative questions. So you need to know what the students know. And so you you might not actually know that they can give this back to you right away. So... That's kind of at the end of your lesson, you might do something more like that where you' where it's a review. and it may not be as rapid fire. They might be just as discreet, but they're going to be questions of,
2: you know what this could be like after they've read a chapter at home mm-hmm. and you're getting ready to have a discussion, and you just want to make sure that they've read it. Mm-hmm. So it would be like really basic questions about that or if you have just done, say, a famous Men of Rome lesson. And you just wanna make you just wanna make sure that they were listening, engaged, and that they got it. So the questions I think would be less rapid fire and more like, can anybody tell me um what happened when um Adam of the Road brought the war horse out um to the the other boys that did mm, right. weren't so, nice to him or can I ask a
0: clarifying question? So the first type of question was rapid fire and that's about facts. Yes. The second kind of question is evaluative. Is it an evaluation the student is making or that the teacher is making No,
1: I, I think this the teacher making an evaluation of what the student knows. Okay. So for example, you might use a rapid fire question at the beginning of a Latin class, which is um what are the five cases? Knowledge, degenerative mm-hmm. dative accusative, ablative, right? But the first time you teach that content at the end of the lesson, at the end of teaching that, you might say, "Who can tell me the names of the five cases?" right And those that's kind of you're using you're asking the same question, but in different scenarios and for different
2: purposes. And really, the first kind of rapid fire drill question is that's the material that we really want students to master. Mm-hmm. And the second kind of question is more, we just want to make sure, that they're getting what we're teaching. Mm-hmm. So it is totally, really the first kind of question is, is about memory. Sure. What are the third
0: and fourth types of questions?
2: Paul? So then the the
1: third kind of question would be uh, where you are through a series of questions, leading students to some sort of discovery. Mm. Um, and it's what she, she, she didn't like the term discovery learning right. in the sense of just kind of send the students out and let them go find something to, to learn. But she was like, the real discovery learning is where you you're questioning them in the same way in, in the mino right with the with the slave boy questioning him to the point where he he's like oh that that has to be true because I just walked through this logical process the light bulb comes on mm-hmm. right and and so that you have to you have to really prepare for and know how you're gonna lead them and you also have to know when they go off the rails you have to know how to how to lead them back to. What you're trying to get them to, and so I mean, math teachers do this all the time, mm-hmm. right? You, and Latin, you would do it in
2: mm-hmm. Latin too. Yeah,
1: and okay, what what's our next step in this process? What, you know, yeah. and and helping them figure out that that pattern of that thought that where they're going to end up to solving the equation or coming up with a translation, whatever that be. And then the fourth one is more I would I would call more value based questions, Um where it, you or you call them discussion questions, where we're talking about the value, where we kind of Martin ended on, and in, in the Socratic questions uh, podcast, where you talked about with Socratic question, we're really talking about values and and what is justice, how ought we to live justice, that sort of thing, and so those are mo- much more broad, much more open ended, take a whole lot of time, and need to be even more carefully planned than your ones where you're trying to lead them to a discovery.
0: Martin, I have a question for you about these four types of questions, but before I ask it, let's take a quick break. On your mark, get set, go live. Classical Etc. is hitting the road and going live at the Great Homeschool Convention in Cincinnati, Ohio this coming April. We'll be there with the rest of the Memoria Press team to meet with you, answer your questions, and come together at this table for a live taping of Classical Etc. Join us in Cincinnati April 13th through 15th at the Great Homeschool Convention. Follow the link in the description to learn more. Hope to see you there. Martin, we've talked about rapid-fire questions, evaluative questions, questions that are leading, and then questions about values or themes. Is there any guidance you could offer teachers about the appropriateness of these questions for different age levels, grade levels? How, how should teachers think about when to utilize these kinds of
3: questions. Well, I, I you know, I think the first couple are really for um for younger children. I mean it's a just just a means of of getting the knowledge in their heads. And you're so you you are asking uh leading questions. Uh you know, Cheryl Cheryl used to and I can't remember the exact expression she used when she was talking about the discovery learning of the kind that progressive educators are always talking about, which she characterized as um is uh, giving children knowledge by withholding it from them. Hmm. And, and, but if, if you, if you think about it, there's a way you could sort of describe what we're talking about here is doing that because you're, 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 presumably they've had something that is informing them of what they're supposed to know. And you're just trying to, to get them to, uh, to express that in a way where they kind of embrace the knowledge. And, um, and probably connect the dots and connect the dots you know, saying some, having to say something yourself, expressing it back, is a is a helpful tool in learning. And so, part of the reason for doing some of that kind of early stuff is so that they will do that. So they will, they now have to articulate it, which means they have to think about it mm-hmm. again and think about it in an opposite direction from when it was incoming. So, uh so I think I think that's 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 important. That's something you're doing with a lot of younger children. You can even do that on math math facts obviously you're you know johnny what's what's two plus three uh uh, you know this sort of thing which is a very different thing than when when you're asking them to evaluate something that they already know Mm -hmm. and um and i think uh because what what you i think those are two very different ways of using question and answers because you know i was thinking when i found out what the what we're going to be talking about in this program i was thinking about some of the discussions we have over at uh, Dan Scheffler's house uh, about, about once a month. Where I've and, never been invited. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll talk to you about that later. Mm-hmm. Uh, where we... Where we uh, um, I'm sure you will. <laughs> where the the level of the discussions is extremely high. And, and, and so I think uh, after you talk about, you know, using questions to, to uh, help somebody to gain knowledge... Once you have the knowledge and you're assessing it, the the best way to do that is in community with somebody. Mm. Um, and so what you're what you're trying to do in the classroom is a very different situation than mm. Dan's living room. You're Right? Okay. That's that's we do that. These are very mature, uh, trained trained people who are doing this. They they've directed these things before, and maybe to a certain extent in your own classroom. There's only a certain there's only a certain extent to which you can do this in a classroom. For
2: one thing, they don't have the knowledge that they need to be able to make good arguments and you don't want them arguing. You don't want young children arguing with each other over things. They're not ready to argue. That's why it has to be teacher directed.
3: Although the older they get, I mean, you can get, you can find yourself in a high school situation, high school. I don't understand why so-and-so did this and such. Mm -hmm. And, some other student that kind of piques them, so they say, "Well, I mean, he's trying to do X," and would, and so then the teacher is, you this is the, this is what you becomes the moderator." Want them to do the mm-hmm. teacher becomes moderator, and then, well, you know what, you know what, Soso said. Actually, it sounds kind of funny, but but think about it for a minute, and th- th- so you're 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 helping to now cultivate something that's already going on in the classroom because there's enough maturity there to where you can have a decent discussion and and that's something that kids will latch on to when there's an argument in the class between two students If you ever can ever get to that point. uh everybody's engaged in it every mm-hmm. mind in that classroom is focused on what's going on right now and so you want to but you're still always and this is the difference i have with a lot of people who talk about socratic discussion in classical education that the the teacher always has to be in control of the situation and know where things are going Mm -hmm. and stop it from going here and pushing it to go over there and this sort of thing and 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 that not only that not only takes training on the part of the of the students takes training on the part of the instructor Mm.
2: and a lot of forethought and preparation but for the younger students we can We can get there, but we just have to do it in a different way. So I used an example earlier from Adam of the Road, so I'm just going to continue that one. So Adam wants nothing more than to be a minstrel like his father. He wants to be on the road. He wants to be outside in nature, not crammed into a classroom like his best friend Perkin, who's thrilled to be at Oxford studying. Mm. And so you can put on the board the pros of being a minstrel, the pros of being a student in a classroom in Oxford. And students can express their opinions by giving you that list of pros and then cons of each. And so you're training them to think about they have preferences and the things that would be good or bad. But it's we're doing it in a way that diffuses any kind mm-hmm. of um, disagreement. Real, I mean, they will be in disagreement some. It will be, we're not saying they can't have opinions and that we're feeding them everything, but we have to do it in a controlled way mm-hmm. that makes good sense. Rather than if you just threw out the question, who wants to be a minstrel? Who wants sure. to be, you know, then then you're not really accomplishing anything. But if you actually write down the pros and cons, you can see that there are pros to both yeah. and there are cons to both.
1: Yeah, and uh, one thing I'd like to point out that occurred to me as as Martin was talking about the the discussions at Dan's house is,
2: have you been invited?
1: I have been hmm. invited.
2: Been invited, Shane? They used to happen <laughs> at my invited. house Tanya, actually. <laughs> so
1: if you did it at your house, we might all show up. Oh, there is um, a scary thought. <laughs> um, the my starting by by having questioning as a, sort of a default mode in the classroom. So, you know, in middle school, I I love doing this where a student would, would, you know, raise their hand and say, well, Mr. Schaefer, you know, why, why did Patroclus take Achilles armor? Well, why do you think he did it right? Like what in the text would, would, would get you in, in your default mode is to ask it back. You're modeling for them. That this, in some sense, is a way of humility, a way of always being willing to question and always being willing to say, I don't know, what do you, what do you think about that? And, and and so that modeling, because in those conversations at Dan's house, it's not a bunch of people shouting at each other. But oftentimes people will say. Although it can sound like that sometimes. It, it can sometimes. <laughs> but But what will happen is somebody will say, well, this is what this author says over here. And then somebody else will say, but if that author's saying that, well, what about this other thing? And not, not not everybody shouting at each other, but but posing questions. There's a lot of question posing one to another rather than just people shouting at each other. So you so you so we're modeling as a teacher by always asking questions, by making that something that happens in every single classroom, every single class period. We are, we are teaching them not to be um really rigid in their thought, but always being willing to question and
2: say, well, what about this other thing? What about this other thing? Right. Is Achilles a hero or mm-hmm. a wimp? I mean, there are mm-hmm. just all kinds of things that we can deal with that get beyond the rapid fire. This is the information we want you to master. Yeah. And this,
3: this strikes me anytime I go into a classroom here at Highlands is you go into even a lower school classroom and, and the teacher is always asking questions. It's just they're different kinds of questions for a different purpose.
0: Yeah, it sounds like what you're articulating is that our teachers need to be conscious of the level of the kind of question that they're asking and the suitability of that question for the subject that they're teaching. So building on that, what do you think teachers can do practically? What what would you be saying to teachers when you're coaching them and I'm thinking specifically now of high school humanities teachers mm-hmm. essentially to have good discussion. What do they need to be doing during the week? To prepare for those great discussions as they're lesson planning or, you know, in our words, learning the curriculum um, that they're going to be presenting.
2: I think they the first thing is to really know the material and to have those essential questions. What are the essential questions for whatever text you're studying that we want to lead students to? So we're it's basically you need to know the answer to that. What are the questions that you want? Are you, when you read the Odyssey, is the journey the main thing about it? What is it that you want students to know? Essential questions, and then be able to hopefully have the conversation to lead them there. But I've been in classrooms too, and I taught fifth and sixth grades, not high school, where some one of my students would say something that I had never even mm-hmm. considered before, so also, the other thing is you can't you have to be prepared, but not rigid right You have to mm-hmm. be prepared for students to say things that are going to turn a light bulb on for you, especially in high school because mm-hmm. those students have are they are yeah ready especially to go.
3: great books uh, like you say, teaching in high school, you know the students will will notice things that you did not notice, mm-hmm. and it's good, and even even when it's something you have noticed and a student says something that you haven't you haven't made the observation. The student makes the observation and maybe it's one you were going to make, or maybe it's one you've never heard before. And you said, okay, that's interesting. Explain that. Or what does everybody think? Everybody else think about what Mm -hmm. he just said. Mm -hmm. Did anybody else notice this? Those that's when people are really engaged in, in what's going
1: on. well and those techniques you just use give you time to formulate how what do I want to think about this and how do I want to lead them on that right mm-hmm. so if it catches you by surprise as much as you've prepared 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 by throwing it back to them gives you a chance to go hmm is this is is this going in a direction that I that I need to steer them away yes. from yes is this worth trumping what I had prepared mm-hmm. if not I need to redirect them mm-hmm. and say okay that's interesting great Let's let's Turn tie that boat. Let's, let's move right. yeah, back to and, this. And I remember this
3: when 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 I when, I, when, I, when I, we first started the online school, which I think was around 2003, 2005, somewhere. Mm. Right. We did not have did the video. internet back then, huh? But yeah, the, <laughs> the stone age of uh, era of um, the we, it was we all, all chat. The tech, the, yeah, it was text mm. chat. We had to use text chat. Can you imagine? But there, and but the thing is that. That even when the video came in, uh, we went then to video, something was lost. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. A different technology mm-hmm. comes in. It was, I, 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 there was something that was going on in the text chat. I guess, and I, I never fully explained to myself what it was. But what, what I later th- then decided to do a couple of years after I was using the video now is we went back to text chat for discussion of literature. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. called it the Socratic session. They thought this was Oh, this is, this is really the advanced stuff. No, it's the primitive technology we're going to use here. And, and so, I, you know, and, and you're seeing these posts come down. And if you've got some, that can be kind of confusing. So you really have to pay attention. But some student would always, there's always some student who'd make some observation. Oh, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Everybody look at what Joseph said here. What do you think of that? And it, it sort of enabled mm-hmm. me to do that better, which and I and it enabled you know, them
2: to, you know, because they'll speak focus, by because t- it's still right yes, there they can still read yes. it right there, and they'll speak by text, whereas they may not want to. Yes, or, yeah,
3: yes. Mm-hmm. It, it it was a that the different technology created a very different discussion. That's environment. interesting. In many ways it was better. Mm-hmm. Very very interesting.
0: You should consider going back to that at the MPOA.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your advanced <laughs> online
1: program. Thank Turn you. those cameras off. <laughs> we, we, maybe, I'm, maybe we will.
2: I, I would like to ask a question, which I didn't ask before. I am a little confused about the difference between the third type of question and the fourth type of question.
0: So, Paul, first, the third type of question is a leading question, right? Mm-hmm. Use it, and the fourth question is about values.
1: That's the, that's the way I would characterize it. Yes. So, so the
2: third one, you're still imparting information to them, but the fourth one you're asking them to impart is kind of like the rhetoric. It's right. Right. That's
1: the distinction I would make between those two. So, so your, that, that third sort of discovery learning one that you the question, the responses you're going to get from a student are probably going to be one sentence or less.
2: And they are responses that you're expecting.
1: That's correct. Because you've formulated that question in a way that there's really only one, you know, you're, you're taking you're just that. You're leading them to an yeah, end point. Between every question, you're just taking that minuscule step forward in whatever whatever you're trying to lead them towards. Mm-hmm. So there's no real way for them to go off kilter, um, except to look at you like a deer in the headlights and go, I don't know. um then you pivot to the next student uh whereas the fourth one the the discussion questions those are more going to be these these great ideas kinds of questions which allows students to to push and pull a little bit more about well what what does this mean what of
2: it um so you're really not going to use that except for high school you're yeah. yeah. You we could would, le- use number three, and you're going to introduce things like justice and mercy or whatever. You're going to introduce them, but but you're really leading them, yeah, very and, definitely toward right,
1: right. And I mean, an I aunt. did it a little bit like with the Iliad* and *The Odyssey* in seventh and eighth grade, but we were we were. I, I made sure I kind of kept that. I mean, we're talking five minutes would keep that keep the rails on right. fairly well. And, and then as, as those kids get older, they they had more and more time for that.
3: Well, there's also a difference between, like when I, I'm teaching literature um, <clears throat> and we're doing some sort of plot analysis or something, mm-hmm. and I, I I use a plot diagram. I have certain questions. That, what do we put here? What do we put here? What do we put here? I think that's sort of the, the third question right. more. But then when you ask... Why did so and so do mm. thus and such? Then you've stepped, I think, to the fourth question, if I'm not mistaken.
0: It seems like you're hitting at an important question about the fourth question. And that is what, what are we trying to achieve? Mm-hmm. Is it is it understanding of something they didn't understand before? Is it a connection to their life? What is the purpose or goal of this discussion of thematic elements in literature or theology or history? That's a question
1: you're you're asking. I am. Uh well, I I don't know that you can that we can give a universal answer to that. It, you know, more of in this book when when I'm bringing this up, what is my purpose here for doing that? And and I this is an overly used example from my life. But when when I realized that a student was so far off kilter on her understanding of what love was when we were in Book Four of the Aeneid with Dido. I had to stop and say, okay, we need to spend time in class about this because this is going to orient the way this person sees relationships. And the whole class, like everybody was on board with like, oh, it was so wonderful that Dido killed herself because her, you know, because the, the, Aeneas <coughs> ran off. No, it's not wonderful. Okay, so let's talk about what love is. And so I had a very particular goal in that class. Is was I wanted to bust them of it, and you know Martin has brought in. You talk about your, the Flannery O'Connor short stories you brought in to knock those kids out of their cynicism, right? Mm-hmm. Like you will see in your class sometimes a very particular thing that you want to hammer, um, and then that's going to define your purpose of why you're bringing these questions. But up. But
2: I think universally, we we're just we're. I think it really comes down to teaching them how to think. And hopefully we've done that. And that this then is before we send them off to college, Mm -hmm. this would be our way of controlling that in the classroom, but also giving them the opportunity to express themselves and to really start thinking about those things that they need to think about. Like what is God's purpose for their lives and how do they achieve it? And what is what is justice? what mm. does that mean, and how how can they be ethical people? So I think all of that you don't think' finishing so? the finishing, no, 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 it's no,
0: the finishing I, touches on learn teaching students how to think and not what to
3: think,
1: yeah, right? well, and as you said that, I thought, well, maybe maybe this is actually one of the one of the key ways in which we're actually freeing the students, mm. right mm. We're freeing them in the in the liberal art sense. We're freeing them from societal tropes and just ways of thinking and, and teaching them to think more broadly and to question things and in the sense of question the great ideas and not just assume, oh, justice is this or love is because this. Because
2: nothing's black and white like that. Yeah. It, it And that's why we end with apologetics. Mm-hmm. You know, our seniors take an apologetics course. Well,
3: one of, the way I think about this is one one of the things you, the first thing you, you're doing is trying to figure out what the author is saying. Okay. That and and that involves like how the story's structured, um, what they said and why they said it and all this stuff. And the last thing is is what you think about what the author said. And you cannot do that until you've established that first thing. You've got to understand what the author's saying. You know, Paul brought up Flannery O'Connor. Lyra O'Connor is the most sophisticated writer I have ever read. And, and what she's saying <laughs> is buried so far down that you could spend the whole time just talking about what she's saying mm. and the weird way in which she said it. <laughs> and, and if you could just get there, then you're, you're, you've, you've done, you you've accomplished something. And, and, it, it so there I, I just i have found in discussions of flannery o'connor stories that you don't spend as much time on what you think about what she said because you're still so she, trying to she, figure she out. stunned you with with what, what she actually said and, and your, once you
1: get to what she said you basically just have to say okay i'll take it <laughs> yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> right, right uh but but with most authors you you are talking about they they're saying something and they're saying it in a particular way and you talk about you know cuz we we've really haven't talked about like structural elements in a, in a, in a piece of literature. That's a very different thing. They're doing the plot diagram and all that stuff and how they did that. Um, and, and that's, that's, that's getting into deeply the skill of the author in doing what they've done and saying what they're saying. But, uh, even, even when, you know, you're just trying to lead kids in that, that what I would call, I guess the third step, you're just leading kids to understanding what in fact they said. And sometimes that's enough. Mm. Sometimes that's as far as you can get. Um mm-hmm. and then with the older students, then you can go to that fourth step of saying, well, what do you what do we think of mm. Are they are they right? Right. Are they wrong?
0: Um it appears as though you could summarize everything that you guys are saying as don't attempt to achieve that final fourth question too quickly. Don't yes. it, it needs Absolutely. to be earned in that Absolutely. we have to lay a groundwork and it's not because we're telling our students what to think necessarily, we're building towards teaching them how to think. Mm-hmm. And that takes the memorization of facts and more deduct.
3: And I think that really is is the lesson. And I think even in high school classes, uh, sometimes even advanced high school classes, if you've got an advanced author like a Flannery O'Connor or something like that, uh, sometimes that's all you want to get out of that. Uh, you, the the why and the and the and and whether this is a good message or what whatever this is is uh, is Is not they're not even ready for that yet. Maybe with that particular author, we
2: do read a lot of things that that they're really not ready. Like Augustine, they're really not fully ready. But hopefully, they will one day return to those Mm -hmm. things and be fully ready. We're building a foundation. Yeah,
1: and I think Shane, what you said bears repeating. That you know, when when a teacher hears you should use questioning in your classroom. They don't need to jump to the fourth one. Right. Right. There's, there's so many, which is the tendency. That is the tendency. And there are so many other kinds of questions you can ask, um, that are going to pay dividends rather than trying to jump to something the students aren't prepared for.
0: Let's end on this. Y'all have many collective years of teaching experience between you. Is there any uh, memorable light bulb moments either for a student or for yourself in a classroom situation that you could share with our audience a time where you were in a discussion and a student noticed something that was profound to them or you saw the light bulb go on for them or for yourself that uh, shows the fruit of this kind of discussion?
1: Without mm-hmm. ho- hopefully getting too far in the weeds, when I was teaching the classical philosophy course, at Highlands, we um, were talking about essential differences and accidental differences. And, and I had a student put together, oh, if we're talking about qualities and differences and some are according to their essence and some are just accidental, meaning that, that aren't part of their essence, she raised her hand, she said, Mr. Schaefer, is, is gender accidental or essential? And I, I mean, that question came out of nowhere. But what she was trying to do was take what she was learning and apply that to questions that she was being confronted with. It, you know, as she was becoming an adult, and I looked at her and I said, "You don't have the philosophical tools to answer that question right now." <laughs> but I, but I said, "When we get there, we can circle back." And we did. We circle back for for a very short time. I said, "This question, I like. I can't deny." I mean, these were juniors. Like we were we were almost out of it. Like I can't deny that that's a valid question based on what we're learning, but she was able to put it together and I wasn't I, I was was hoping they weren't gonna put that together at that point, right? Um and so we ended up having a great fruitful conversation later on, but I also had to say, Hold that. <laughs> Not, hold yet. that. Not yet. Hold that. Yeah. I mean, she had to hold it for like four or five months before mm-hmm. she had the tools.
3: Well, my Paul referred to this earlier. I had this class of very cynical seniors. It was just, you know, all all senior all classes. My son are was in there. <laughs> he was, and they were just so cynical about everything. Nothing was capturing them. Nothing. I mean, some, some we, should, we were doing some great stuff. So I, I had a couple weeks really that I that I could do something with, and so we read Flannery O'Connor's "Good Country People." Which is the story about the traveling Bible salesman who steals the lady's wooden leg? (laughs) And and if you've ever read Flannery O'Connor, she'll just numb you with her her uh, these these just these incredible underlying metaphysical insights Mm -hmm. in these preposterous stories.
2: Preposterous, that's good.
3: And and it's like they just they just fastened onto this story that finally there was something that, that they, they couldn't easily understand cause they were all very intelligent that they couldn't easily understand and just process doing their usual thing. They had to deal with this. And so we spent two weeks on this. It was it and was that's, that's, that's the one I remember. I, I just had to, I had to, to deal with a cynicism hmm. somehow. And I used Flannery or O'Connor just to just explode the whole thing. So,
2: yeah. Do you have anything? Mine is a failure on my behalf. Oh, interesting. Um, when the first time I taught the door in the wall, I didn't tell my students that it didn't end perfectly, and I didn't—I didn't lead them in the way that I would have if I had followed this. I should have been leading them toward the fact that that everybody has a purpose in life, and that no life is perfect. Mm. And they were just devastated that he didn't walk at the end of his life or at the end of the book, even though he became the hero of the town. He saves the town. He finds his door in the wall. But I learned after that, you know, that you really do. These were fifth graders. You really do have to lead them toward what you want them to to get and I didn't you know I just kept saying I'm not going to tell you the end of the book well that was a mistake I mean I I shouldn't I knew I didn't tell them the end of the book from then on but I was certainly leading them toward after that year leading them toward the real purpose of the book Mm. and I really failed that first year students
0: So, overall the teachers listening failing and then learning how to do better the next year (laughs) that's that's a big part of it
2: (laughs) it is it i mean you have to lead you have to guide them because all Mm -hmm. they're seeing is a crippled boy that they want healed and they and they didn't see beyond that and i needed to help them get there
3: Mm.
0: sounds like a great discussion though eventually
2: eventually yes
0: well i've enjoyed this conversation thank you guys thank you so much for listening to this episode of classical etc You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria
1: Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit us at memoriapress.com. To connect
3: with us, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.